you have a Bible on your phone, you can go uh, in, in, on the Bible app. If you need a Bible, please slip your hand up. We have Bibles for you in the Christian Standard Bible, CSB. Um, and we're going to be in John chapter 4. And you are going to need your Bible this morning. Now, if you're just working on your grocery list, you know, maybe you don't need your Bible. But hopefully you're here, for, hopefully you're here to, uh, to, uh, to learn and grow along uh, with us together. And so you're going to need your Bible in John 4. So here's what I want to do. I want to walk through this very famous narrative, this story, this beautiful, powerful story of Jesus meeting this woman at the well. And then I want, I, what I want to do is I'm going, to, I'm going to kind of explain it as we walk through it. And then I want to draw out some implications for the mission that God has given us as a church. Because the reason uh, my family... Uh, left the church we were at before and, and felt God calling us to start a new church. The reason, you know, we have folks get here early on Sundays and sweat and move furniture and set up drapes. And, and, and the reason we're doing all this is not just so that we can have a nice little church here that, you know, is whatever in, in the neighborhood. The reason we're here is because God has a mission for us. And that mission is to help people find life like he has called and intended for them to live. And, and I think in the text here in John 4, we're going to see Jesus encounter a woman where he's going to do just that. He's going to offer and give to her life like he has intended her to live. In the, the blast email this week, I, I, uh, I, I, I used the, the phrase, perfect man seeks five times divorced adulterous woman. Um, and so it's not how you'd start a Match.com profile, but this is what Jesus is doing here. And Jesus is very different than we are. So let's do this. Let's pray, and then we're going to do that. I would ask, does that sound good? I hate it when speakers do that. They say, hey, does that sound good? Like they're really going to change what they do if the audience is like, no, because this is what we're going to do. You can like it or not. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for speaking to us and revealing who you are in the, in the incarnation and crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus Christ and the sending of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you are a trinity, that you are fullness of life, that you don't need us, but yet you want us. And uh, I just pray as we look at this beautiful story of Jesus encountering this woman, this used and abused woman, unlikely, unworthy woman, Lord, and in that we will find our own story that I just pray you would help us and help me to say exactly what you want me to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's been a while since we were in John. We're in, we're in the book of John. We're studying the book of John. We got through the first three chapters in the fall. And so I'm trying not to be there forever. Some, some preachers, they do verse by verse, and that's what I like to do. But they're like, they'll be in a book for like 17 years. I'm just like, not about that life, okay? So I want to move through it a little bit, you know, quickly so that you don't feel like we're stuck forever. So we got through the first three chapters, and in the last chapter of, that we looked at, chapter three, we saw this really famous story of Jesus talking to this guy named Nicodemus, right? And so Nicodemus comes to him at night and asks him, and says, teacher, we know you're from God. No one could do what you're doing if he wasn't from God. And Jesus calls him and, and, and says, you must be born again. And, he, and there's this interaction. Later in John, we see Nicodemus actually becomes a disciple. He, he, not then, but, but as Jesus kind of 
works in his heart, he begins to follow Jesus by the end of the Gospel of John. And John is intentionally putting this next story in contrast to Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus was powerful, he was important, he was a man, he, he, he was influential, he, he was uh, respectable, upstanding, and he, he was everything that the woman we're going to see in the story wasn't. And yet he was afraid to come to Jesus during the day, whereas this woman meets Jesus at high noon. And we see here this, this beautiful diversity that God intends in his body. Men like Nicodemus and woman, women like the, the, the story we're going to see are both invited into God's kingdom and invited into the church. And he's inviting all kinds of people into the church here in South Florida. He's, you know, we live in one of the most diverse regions in the nation. And, and, and he's inviting us to be a community that reflects who he has designed us to be. And we see that here in John 4. If you look at verse 1, it says, Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard he was making, baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. So, so there's this threat from the Pharisees. It says, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. Judea was in the southern region of Israel. Galilee was in the northern region. And in between, there was this region called Samaria. And in Samaria, it says he, verse 4, had to travel through Samaria. And that's talking about not just geographic necessity, but divine necessity. That his mission required him to go through Samaria because the father had business in Samaria. And so Jesus is following the Father's direction, and he goes through Samaria. And here in Samaria, verse 5, he comes to a town called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jo J Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was worn out from the journey, and he sat down at the well, and it was about the sixth hour, was about noon, middle of the day. So, so here's the context, that that there was the original patriarch of Israel, Abraham, had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob, and then Jacob had 12 sons. His favorite son was Joseph. Joseph then, he bequeathed, to Joseph he bequeathed, or he gave this plot of land that was here where Jesus was, at least that was the traditional site for it. Jacob's well was there. And so there's this Old Testament that this was a special place. It had history behind it. This was, not, this was like, you know, people go and um, I've been doing all, uh, a series of biographies and, and historical narratives on the Civil War era and all of that. And I was just listening to the biography talking about the Battle of Gettysburg, right? So there's this historic site that has meaning beyond just the, the, the place it is now. It has a, it has a past. So this place, it, had a, it has a past. And the past is this, this deep roots in the purposes of God from thousands of years before. And it says Jesus was tired. He was worn out from the journey. I don't know if you ever felt that way. Worn out from the journey. I feel that way. Worn out from the journey. Um, the, the beauty of what we believe as Christians is that the eternal God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One of the three persons became a human being. And so he was both fully God, but also fully human. So he was worn out from the journey. God in Christ was worn out from the journey. God doesn't get tired, but Jesus got tired because Jesus 
was man. He was a human being. So he knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows exactly what it's like. If you're tired, whether literally tired because you stayed up too late and you watched the Titans upset the Ravens, and I know that Tannehill guy's pretty good, and so maybe, I don't know, maybe the Dolphins could pick him up for, ne- for next season. Um, I've used that joke so many times. It never, it never gets funnier. It's just never that funny. So, or whether you're kind of like metaphorically tired, it's just like been a tiring season. Jesus knows. He knows what it's like uh, to be tired. And he sits, sits down at the well. When you do it at a well, it's like, it's like he's looking for a drink. Like you stop at Wawa on a road trip or whatever the, you know, the, the, the turnpike service stations and you're going in and he's, he's thirsty. And he sits down verse 7, and a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Because his disciples, verse 8, had gone into town to buy food. So they're like, all right, Jesus, you hang here. We'll run into town. We'll get some snacks. We'll get some supplies, and we'll keep going on our journey. And he says, no, I wait, waiting here. Whether that was just because he was tired or more likely because he knew that there was something that, that God wanted him, the Father wanted him to do. He says to this woman, give me a drink. Now, there, there are at least three major, surpri- majorly surprising reasons why that Jesus wouldn't have been expected to speak to this woman. It, the, the, the first was the time, the second was the person, and the third was the place. So the, so the time was, was, it was noon. The time was noon. That means, that means there shouldn't have been anyone else there because... People, when they would draw water from a well, they would go early in the morning or later in the evening when it wasn't quite so hot. So the fact that someone was there means that this was an unlikely time for someone to be there. So the time was, was strange, but the time was strange, secondly, because of the person who was there at that time. It was a woman who was there. Now, men didn't talk to women in that day. It was considered beneath a man to speak to a woman. The rabbinic tradition, the Jewish rabbinic tradition, actually uh, said that it was a waste of a rabbi, Jesus would consider a rabbi or a teacher, a waste of a rabbi's time to take time to speak to a woman. And so obviously, like, some, some sexism going on there. But, but so, so Jesus, just talking to a woman would have been considered a waste of his time. But, uh, and, 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 but even more so, the woman at this time would have been most likely a woman with an immoral reputation who wasn't welcome when the rest of the women and the rest of the people would be out drawing water. She had to go at a different time, the hot part of the day, because she was a woman of a certain social exclusion and reputation, as we're going to see as the narrative moves on. So, so it was the time, and it was the person, but it was also the time and the person in that place, because it says he was in Samaria, and the woman was not just any woman, she was a woman there at noon, but a woman there at noon from Samaria. Now, Samaria was a very, um, it, it, had, it, had, it had a past. Samaria had a past. Way back, hundreds of years before, in 1 Kings chapter 16, we see that there's this king of Israel named King Omri, A-O-M-R-I. And King Omri was one of the most powerful kings and the most uh, influential kings that the kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel had ever had. So King David, great king, right? You know, Psalm 23, slays the giant, becomes king over Israel, 
David's son Solomon, great king, wealthy, wise, all that. After Solomon, the kingdom split, southern kingdom, northern kingdom. There's division um, from that point forward. The northern kingdom was, was just saturated in wickedness and had all of these wicked kings, and one of them was this guy named King Omri, and he decides that he's going to buy this, this hill, this, 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 this plot of land from a man named Shemer, and the land then was called Shemer, or Shemeria, or Samaria. And so the, 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 the place Samaria was named after this city that was made by King Omri into the capital of the northern kingdom. So the capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. And so that was the northern kingdom. Now the problem was, like 100 plus years later, the Assyrians destroyed Samaria. They deported the residents of Samaria. And then they brought in refugees from the rest of the ancient Near Eastern world so that the people in Samaria were no longer pure Israelites, but they were some sort of mixed race. What, what they might call in Harry Potter the, a mudblood. They, they, there, there's, there's this mixed race of people, and from then on there is massive tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. They, they hated each other. The Samaritans thought that they were, were rightful heirs of the purposes of God through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they built a temple. They rebuilt a temple there. And then it was destroyed by the, by the Jews a couple hundred years later. And it's very likely or at least likely, that the remains and the ruins of this destroyed temple from however many years before was visible when Jesus and this woman are talking. So as we get to the story about true worship, that's, that's kind of right there in the background. So there was a woman at noon, a woman at noon in Samaria. So there's this male-female dynamic, there's the immoral dynamic, and there's also the ethnic dynamic. So there's all these reasons why Jesus had no business talking to this woman. But he talks to her, and he asks her for a drink. Why does he ask her for a drink? There's three reasons he asks her for a drink. The first reason is he was thirsty. Like literally, like he was thirsty. So he asked her for a drink because he's thirsty. Because if you've ever walked through a hot day and have not had any drinks, that's what, kind of how God made us, right? We get thirsty. That's the first reason. But then the second reason uh, is that he was actually embodying three Old Testament stories that happened at wells. Genesis 24, Genesis 29, Exodus 2. We're not going to turn there. All three stories are the stories of a man going to a well after a journey to get water for either himself or his animals, and meeting there a bride, either for himself or his master. So, so Abraham's servant goes to the well of Abraham's family, and there he meets Rebekah, who becomes Isaac's wife. Okay? Uh, Jacob goes to the well where Laban lives, and there he meets Rachel, his wife. Moses, after he's excluded from Egypt goes to the well, and there he meets Jethro's daughter, Zipporah, who becomes his wife. And so when a man on a journey stops at a well for water in the Old Testament, it is very often implied that there's a wife about to show up, which makes the fact that Jesus talks to this woman all the more shocking. 
Because what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is doing is finding his bride in an unlikely place, in an unworthy person. This isn't a beautiful maiden, just ready for marriage, like, like perfectly designed. This is, this is someone that nobody else wants. This is someone nobody else wants. But this is where Jesus looks for his bride. So, so, so that's the second reason. So Jesus was thirsty physically. Secondly, he was looking for a bride. And the third reason is that he's, he's fulfilling the Old Testament promises that are throughout the Old Testament that God would restore Samaria. So, so Amos 4.1, the Samaritans were under a curse. It says, listen to this message, you cows of Bashan who are on the hills of Samaria, women who oppress the poor, crush the needy, and say to their husbands, bring us something to drink. So Jesus is intentionally overturning this, this curse that's upon the Samaritans and bringing salvation to them. There's all sorts of prophecies. Jeremiah 31, 5, Ezekiel 16, 53. We're not going to turn there. That prophesy the restoration of Samaria. So these all tie together. Jesus is looking for a bride to restore, restore Samaria to bring them into his people and his purposes. One writer says, an ancient writer says, the one who was asking for a drink was ultimately thirsting for the woman's faith. So the woman, knowing all of these barriers, says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, verse 9, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The word there for associate, if you're using the CSB, there might be a little footnote that says, or um, <coughs> share vessels or dishes with. Like, like you, don't share ve you don't share cups and dishes because these people are unclean. And a Samaritan woman would have been considered the most unclean of the unclean. The, the rabbinic tradition actually, uh, some rabbinic tradition taught that Samaritan women were in a per perpetual state of menstrual impurity from birth. And so, so, so she's shocked as well as, as well as we would be shocked if we were the initial readers of this, that he speaks to her. How is it that you speak to me? Jesus answered, verse 10, If you knew the gift of God... And who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. If you knew. The, 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 the text is threaded with this theme of knowledge. That true worship and true relationship with God must be rooted in true knowledge of God. So he's, he's addressing a problem in her Knowledge. She doesn't know what she needs to know. She doesn't know who she needs to know. He says, if you knew, then you would ask, and he would give you living water. Living water would have been, in the ancient world, water that was connected to a source of, like a spring or something that was constantly replenishing itself. It wasn't just like, like a standing base of water like a like a tub or something like that it was it was a renewable replenished source of water that that in the ancient world would have been very very highly prized because it meant that the water would be fresh 
And so Jesus is using living water, which the spring would have had where the well was, as a metaphor for what he can offer this woman. Now she says, taking him literally, verse 11, Sir, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. So she, she's thinking there's this well, living water. It's a spring underneath Jacob. Ever since Jacob's day, it's been, a, it's been this source of water for this town uh, for, for centuries, for thousands of years. And she's like, are you going to do better than Jacob did? This well's been here for 2,000 years. And it's been replenishing our city and our people for thousands of years. And Jacob gave us this well, and it's still here. How can you do better than that? Are you greater than Jacob? And Jesus is about to show that, yes, he is greater than Jacob. He said, everyone who drinks from this water, this well, will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up for eternal life. So though Jacob gave the well, Jesus created the water that was in the well. Though Jacob could, could, could s satisfy their physical thirst, Jesus has something that will satisfy them more existentially and permanently and, in fact, eternally. An eternal spring of living water that will bring life. Verse 15, Sir, the woman says, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come back here. There's, there's a note, a, a lot of commentators actually note that she's probably being a little sarcastic. Like, oh yeah, give me that water so that I don't ever have to be thirsty again. Like, like that is not a real thing. That's, that's what she's saying. So, so sometimes people read this and say that she's like so dense that she's like, give me the water. You know, no, she's actually making fun of Jesus. Like, oh yeah, great. Give me the living water that I don't ever have to be thirsty again. Now, what Jesus does in verse 16 is, is kind of weird, right? Because he changes the subject. At least it seems like he changes the subject. He says, go, haul, go, go call your husband and come back here. Why would he say that? It's, like it's kind of like, seems like totally unrelated. Unless you know the history of a man at a well with water and a woman who's looking basically for a wife. And you know that's the context. That's the, that's the, that's, that's, that's the, the, the shadow that's being cast into this story. That, that, that this betrothal is part of what's happening. He, he's almost like asking her, are you available? Are you married? Go call your husband and come back here. It's like when, you know, when I was single and you like meet a girl and be kind of like, so, oh, I bet you and your boyfriend like hoping it's like, well, I don't have a boyfriend, you know, like, so Jesus is like, go call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you correctly said I don't have a husband. But there's an ironic bite because he says, verse 18, for you've had five husbands. And the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So Jesus is looking for a wife. He's looking for a bride at the well where there's water like Abraham's servant had done, like Jacob had done, like Moses had done. And, and, and now this woman says that 
she's not married. And he says, that's right, you're not married because you've been married and divorced five times and now you're living with some guy who's not your husband. Now, a lot of times people highlight this woman as being this like super adulterous, like maybe a prostitute, whatever. But I think that that, is, that may be the case, but it's also the case that this woman is a victim of men who have not cared for her the way God called a husband to care for a wife. Because if a man, div- five times she's been divorced, and maybe she, maybe she cheated, who knows what, what happened, but five times, whatever her sin, she has been hurt deeply as well. Though she has sinned and she is guilty, she has also been hurt and suffered and probably lives in a constant state of shame. Jesus finds in the well this woman who will be a foreshadow of his bride, the church. When we talk about Jesus looking for a bride, he's not like, literally looking for a woman to marry he's looking for a people to save and that people will be called his bride he says you've spoken correctly for you have five husbands the man you have now is not your husband what you have said is true and at this point the woman's like okay something's happening here there's something happening here and he, she goes, sir, I see you are a prophet. Now, she may have said this earnestly, or she may have still been being sarcastic. May, maybe, maybe she thinks this guy knows my story, my story's out there, and he's just, he's just making fun of me. And sir, you're a prophet. Or maybe she genuinely believes he is a prophet. She probably does, because of the next question she asks. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. So they're looking, and they see the ruins of the Samaritan temple off in the distance, or maybe it's nearby, and she says, well, you Jews say you can only worship in Jerusalem, but what about this temple over here? what's, What's the deal with that? And Jesus says to her, believe me, woman. An hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So she she misunderstands the location of worship. It it wasn't a physical place. It was, but but it's not going to be a physical place much longer. She, She misreads the location of worship. Because worship is about to be not about a specific location, but about a specific person about being not in a building, but being in Christ. He says, you will worship neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Then look at verse 22. It says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. We Jews worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. So he's saying, despite all this ethnic tension, despite all this stuff, you Samaritans really did get something wrong. Your your knowledge base of who God is is not correct. It's not enough to be sincere. You also have to have truth. You also have to be sincerely correct. Otherwise, you're just sincerely wrong. So she doesn't understand the fuel for worship she misunderstands the location she misunderstands the fuel for worship which is the true knowledge of god 
She has to know who God really is. Verse 23, he says, But an hour is coming when it is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. If you have a CSB, the word spirit there is capitalized. It's not talking about passionate spirit worship of like our own spirit. It's talking about the fact that only the spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit, can lead us into true worship. That worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Who is the truth? Jesus is the truth. True worship is Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father, verse 20, um, continuing in verse 24, is wanting or looking or seeking for such people to worship Him. Verse 24, God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. We must have the right knowledge. We have to know who God is. We have to know what God has done. He has sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to die a sinner's death, to be buried and raised from the dead, so that anyone who will turn from their sin and trust in him will have forgiveness of their sin, be given eternal life, and then we can worship in Christ by the Spirit. The woman, verse 25, is confused. Maybe she's like, who are you to say? Verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. That's a John adding that in for us. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. The Samaritans had a, an expectation not for a Messiah, that's, that's transla- translated here for us that way, but that what they called the Taheb, T-H-E-B, this, this messianic figure that wasn't quite the same but similar to the Jewish Messiah. And what they thought he was going to do basically was be a teacher, a great teacher, And that's what a lot of people thought Jesus was. But Jesus was so much more than just a great teacher. He tells her, verse 26, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Now, you don't catch it in this translation or in most translations. But if you look in the original, it's written originally in Greek. It literally says, I am the one speaking to you. You might say, okay, that's interesting or whatever. What does that mean? Well, if you know the story of John, you know that that phrase, I am, Greek ego eimi, is throughout the book of John as an identifier of Jesus in all sorts of ways. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the true vine. There's seven of these. But there's also some times where Jesus simply says, I am, and that's a reflection of what God told Moses from the burning bush. I am the one true and living God. And so what Jesus is doing explicitly is claiming to be the Messiah and implicitly claiming to be God. I am the one speaking to you. And at this point, the woman is changed forever. Look at verse 27. It says, The disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was speaking with a woman. Yet no one asked, What do you want, or why are you talking with her? Okay. Sometimes you just know it's just good. They don't always have a lot of self control, but here they do. It says, verse 28, the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people. How astounding is that? She'd come to the well to get water, and now she leaves her water jar. We don't know why. doesn't say why. Maybe she left it because she forgot. Maybe she left it because it didn't matter anymore. Maybe she left it so Jesus could drink. We don't know. All we know is that her purpose in life has changed so radically that she doesn't keep it. And she goes back to town 
not with water, but with living water. And she told the people, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Now, he didn't tell her everything she ever did. All he did was tell her that she had five husbands and an adulterous relationship. But what had happened is this had become so central in her mind, and maybe you're like that, where some sin, something in your life has so begun to identify you in your own mind. That's what this woman, she had begun to see herself solely through this lens, and that was a huge part of her story. But what Jesus is saying is he can change all that. He can change all that. He can change that in her life. He can change that in your life. Could this be the Messiah, she asks. And they left the town and made their way toward him. In the meantime, verse 31, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he says, I have food to eat you don't know about. In a, in a kind of a parallel story of how the woman misunderstands about the water, the disciples misunderstand about the food, and they say, could someone have brought him something to eat? Could he, did he actually eat with the Samaritan woman? Like, what, what's going on here? And, and then he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you say there are still four months and then the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay, gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. For this is the case, in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for what you didn't labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. So this picture of a harvest is used to illustrate what God's purposes are in the world, and that is to bring people into the fullness of his life and his love. And Jesus is saying he's been sent for that purpose, and he's sending the disciples for that purpose. The issue was they went into the town to buy food, the whole group of them, and didn't make a dent in the problems of that city and in the spiritual conditions of that city. Jesus meets one outcast woman on the outside of town at a well, and he changes the whole city in the moment. Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. The woman has become a witness. Jesus turns a wicked woman into a worshiper and into a witness. So when the Samaritans, verse 40, came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this is the Savior of the world. Jesus has turned this woman into a type of his bride, a worshiper and a witness, and brings an entire city to faith in himself. What the disciples couldn't do in the city, Jesus can do from outside of the city. So, there's a lot we could talk about. This is, this is the story, but I just want br- to make four points, four implications. The first is that our church exists to bring the truth of the life that God intended people to live into this community. That God has designed people for life. Jesus says that he came so that we might have life and have it in abundance. And so we see Jesus' purpose here is to bring life into the life of this woman and into the life of this Samaritan town. And if you have never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ and found life like God is offering to you to do that and find life like he intended 
you to live. We believe that life happens when three things align in our lives, and they're all here in this text. Worship, community, and mission. When we worship God wholeheartedly through the cross of Jesus Christ, when we're brought together in authentic community, and when we're sent out in obedience and joy in the mission God has given us, we experience life like God has intended us to live in glimpses on this earth. We'll never experience it fully until we get to heaven or Jesus returns, but we will experience it and we will taste it. Wholehearted worship. What is wholehearted worship? It's worship in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? It means it's, you know who God is, you worship God according to what he has shown himself to be and who he's shown himself to be and according to what he has done in Christ. So worship is about knowing God, knowing Christ, and then, and then giving your life, heart, soul, mind, and body back to God. And so what I want to challenge you to do, I'm gonna, uh, these are the same, the same application points as last week. Be, and, and the first thing is, get into your Bible. Get into your Bible. You can't worship a God you don't know. And you can't know God if you don't know the Bible. So read the Bible. Study the Bible. Engage the Bible. Wholehearted worship starts with true knowledge of God as it did for this woman. Authentic community. What does it mean to be an authentic community? It means, among other things, that we have relationships with people who are different than we are. We have relationships with people who are different than we are. And those differences are all sorts of different, like, way, like, like it, you have relationships with people who are different ethnically than you. You have relationships with people who have different political opinions than you. You have relationships with people who are different age than you. It's just a beautiful thing when people who are not exactly like each other come together and, 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 and have fellowship with one another. And we have so much to offer one another that people who are exactly like us can't offer us. It was like a few weeks ago, um, we were setting up, and I, I may have even told the story that morning, but my kids were just, my kids were driving me crazy. And, and I was doing what I like to do usually and responding really poorly. And so I was like, it was just like, it was a tough morning and I was talking to Robert in the back. We were setting up, and he was just encouraging me. Because you know what? Robert's been there, and he, he's seen things, and, and he, he's lived through it. And he could tell me, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And, and you know what? Another guy who's 38 or 39, we can encourage each other, but he can't give me that, that story because he hasn't lived it. Because he's just like me, right? And so you need both. You need people who are like you and people who are not like you. And so the best way to lean into that is simply to show up here on Sunday. To show up on Sunday and get to know people. Take someone aside and say, hey, I'd love to grab lunch with you this week. Or do you want to get coffee? Or just lean into relationships. And it starts, it's more than just being here on Sunday, but it isn't less than being here on Sunday. And so I'm just, it's like, if you just come to church every week and read your Bible, like, like, I would be the happiest pastor in the world, okay? All right, then third, joyful mission. Joyful mission. There is someone, at least one person, probably way more, that God has put in your life who doesn't know Christ, who needs to know Christ, because we all need to know Christ. And God is calling you to be the person to bring Christ into their life, like this woman brought Christ into the village. And you say, that's intimidating. I don't know what to do. I never really shared the gospel with anyone. I don't know what to do. Well, here's what you do. 
it's super scary to talk to that person about Jesus. It's a lot less scary to talk to Jesus about that person. So pray for him. Like that starts, pray, just commit. I'm gonna pray for John. I'm gonna pray for Joe or I can't think of any creative names, okay? But I'm gonna pray for them every single day. I'm going to make it part of the rhythm of my life with God that this person is brought before God and I beg God for their salvation. And you know what? God's going to honor that prayer. So, so here's, my, here's, my, here's my last question for you. What's your water jug? What's your water jug? What's that thing that you've brought and in an encounter with Jesus, it loses all of its luster. And are you willing to leave that water jug? Are you willing to leave that with Jesus as he sends you out on his mission? Let's pray. Lord, I just ask for your grace to lean into your love. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that through the crucifixion and resurrection we can have eternal life. That though we are sinners, your grace is abundant. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would bring life to people we know and love who don't know you. And that you would rekindle the life that you've put in our hearts if we do know you. Make us a church. Make us people of wholehearted worship, authentic community, and joyful mission. As you met this woman at the well to be your bride to be a sign of the gathering of the nations, which pretty much all of us are Gentiles here. And because of what you did there, we're here. And so we thank you for that. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus.